Hello, listeners, and welcome to the 50th episode of the Always Drive podcast, your weekly look at the latest news from the car, truck, and motorcycle industries, where we take everything but ourselves seriously. I'm your host, Devlin Riggs, and I was surprised this week by one of my colleagues, Jamie, uh, from my full-time job, who presented me with a photo of something I'd never seen before. Um, There's a cool old BMW 5 Series wagon parked in our parking garage that's lowered and tinted and and it has an exhaust on it, and it's pretty cool looking. Um, It's owned by a large bearded guy. He's he's not large. He has a large beard. Uh, He wears skinny jeans. I haven't met him, um, but I've seen him smoking next to his car before, so I'm pretty sure it's his. Otherwise, uh, there's just some strange hipster guy casually smoking near strangers' cars in our garage, which may be more worrying. Uh, In any case, the picture Jamie sent me was of the BMW's wheel, uh, which is a nice black mesh pattern, but smack in the middle between the lug nuts was the top of an aluminum can. Now, I like to think I'm pretty up-to-date on car trends, but when it... And even when it comes to decoration, which I I normally don't take too much part in, uh, but... I've never previously heard of someone using aluminum can tops as wheel center caps. Is, is it out of de- desperation because you've lost your original center caps and you don't want to gunk up the hubs? Or is it some sort of fashion statement that says, oh, you're cool because you drink beer and sometimes drive? Or is it just sort of a funny, dude, I, that, that can would totally fit down there. Just try it out and see if it pops loose sort of thing. I mean, I, I don't know. And unless I meet Beardy McSkinny Jeans, I, I may never know. But if I do meet him and he turns out to be some strange guy stalking cool cars in our garage, this may be the last episode of our podcast. It's another week in 2018, meaning there's been a batch of news about electric vehicles since they're pretty much regarded as the future of motoring. But how fast that future is coming is very much in question, and a new study from the Centers for Automotive Research suggests that it may not be anytime soon. Um, According to the study, government emissions and fuel economy mandates are helping drive the current push into future technologies rather than consumer interest driving it, which tracks with the amount of people leasing electric vehicles instead of buying them. Um, The research also suggests that electrification and self-driving tech will start in densely populated urban areas with ride-sharing services and then slowly proliferating to the rest of the market. Um, with EVs expected to comprise just about 8% of the total vehicle market by 2030, just 8%. Uh, And remember that several cities and countries are aiming to ban the sales of gasoline and diesel-powered cars by 2040. So to make up a 92% gap in adoption rate in the span of 10 years will require either some serious incentives or some revised expectations. Um, Additionally, any sort of slowing new vehicle sales market, like the one we're seeing now, for instance, or economic downturn, like what we might see as a result of the ridiculously high deep subprime vehicle loan market, uh, would push adoption even further down the line. Uh, in the United Kingdom, though, National Grid, um, however, isn't waiting around for electric cars to take off. 
Their electric utility announced this week that they would spend between 500 million and 1 billion pounds to upgrade the electrical grid and install 50 fast chargers throughout the country to the point that 90% of British population would live within 50 miles of a fast charger, which is pretty cool. Um, such chargers would fill batteries in most EVs in about 12 minutes, uh, which is, you know, much closer to the refueling time of gasoline cars, and it'll go a long way to soothing the range anxiety of British EV owners. Um, current demand for such chargers may be low, um, but in 2017, for the first time, the Tesla Model S outsold both the BMW 7 Series and the Mercedes S-Class in Europe, so demand is certainly there among the upper-crust buyers. But uh, you may not see many other cars at those chargers for some time since the Centers for Automotive Research also suggested that investment in electric vehicle technology would slow over the next few years as companies fail to see the return on their investment so far with the slow sales. And, and part of the problem with the investment is that the production of EVs is still very expensive because of the rare earth elements uh, that go into the parts uh, of the batteries, like cobalt. Uh, the demand for cobalt has driven a boom in small sale, excuse me, small scale cobalt production in Africa, particularly in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, where some mines have been found to be using child labor to meet production quotas. Uh, these small-scale mines, which are sometimes referred to as artisanal mines because nothing can just have a normal freaking name anymore, um, they're tough to police, and, and companies that purchase from them are increasingly under pressure to better vet how the resources are being produced. Uh, the value of cobalt has tripled in value in just the last 18 months, and companies looking for the lowest cost aren't likely to commit too much effort into ensuring their suppliers are acting ethically, which is a problem. Unfortunately, the answer usually means either slowing the pace of production or paying more from reputable miners, which of course would be cost passed on to consumers. Toyota, however, is exploring a third option, which is developing batteries that don't rely on rare earth elements. While they haven't yet found a replacement for cobalt, they have developed a battery which uses less neodymium, uh, replacing it with lanthanum and cerium, which uh, I understand are very much more abundant and cheaper despite the fact that I've never heard of them before writing this show. Um, that said, the development of these uh, new battery technologies will take a while to get itself into vehicles. Toyota says they're aiming for implementation sometime in the next 10 years, which won't help the potential neodymium shortage in the near term. Now we just need to figure out what to do about that whole cobalt thing. This year has been incredible so far for the sheer volume of brave women coming forward to call out assault, harassment, or inequality, not just across Hollywood, but throughout other industries as well. This week, the Me Too movement arrived in Michigan, where Raj Nair, the executive vice president and North American president for Ford, was booted after an anonymous complaint spurred an investigation which found he had committed some inappropriate behavior. Details are scarce, but Nair himself was quoted in Ford's press release on the matter, saying that he regretted that there had been instances where he did not exhibit leadership behaviors consistent with Ford. Cars in general and the automotive industry is frequently regarded as a sort of old boys club, which has undoubtedly put upon many women undeserved treatment. 
While reactions to these sort of allegations have varied widely, from some politicians owning up and resigning to some flat-out denying accusations and calling women liars, it's nice to see Ford taking the right path and committing to a higher standard of conduct than we see from so many of our elected officials. In Atlanta this week, a driver for Uber Eats, Uber's food delivery service, shot and killed a customer after delivering his food. Ryan Thornton was shot multiple times by the driver, for whom police are still searching. Um, Uber prohibits their drivers from carrying any kind of weapons, but without ever conducting inspections of its drivers, how could they possibly ever know if any driver was violating that policy? Realistically, this guy could have been working for any food delivery company, but since it's Uber and since they have a not-so-great record with safety already, it's an easy target for criticism. I'm sure the company is cooperating with police because the last thing they need is for this to turn into a trend, especially since we've had enough killing in this country lately. Few car companies have been around as long as Daimler, but the German company hasn't always been on the right side of history. Mercedes-Benz, Daimler's automotive brand, uh, though named after an Austrian Jewish girl, Mercedes Jelinek, was Hitler's favorite vehicle and used Eastern European prisoners of war as forced labor during World War II. Uh, perhaps this is why some neo-Nazis have decided that Daimler is the perfect place to stage a right-wing uprising. At the company's Unterturkheim factory, neo-Nazis have formed an alternative union, Centrum Automobile, and are trying to spread propaganda and turn laborers to their cause. In the past 70 or so years, Daimler, as with the majority of the rest of Germany, has had some time to think on its role with the Nazis and wants nothing to do with the right-wing movement and have stated that it expects all employees will live with tolerance in their daily work and act together with respect, openness, faith, and fairness, all things the Nazis aren't historically known for being strong at. Generally speaking, uh, cars should not be the headline of an article about a bicycle race, but that's just what happened this week during the Abu Dhabi tour. In bike races, there's a lead car to ensure that the path ahead of the cyclist is safe, and this also sometimes provides a draft for lead cyclists to follow so that they can eke out some more time at the head of the pack via reduced wind resistance. Well, the lead car in this race was a Mercedes-Benz E-Class equipped with the Pre-Safe Plus program, which applies the vehicle's brakes when it senses an impending rear-end collision to stop the car hitting vehicles in front of it. Unfortunately for cyclists, this system doesn't distinguish between potential vehicular impact and a cyclist trying to ride the bumper for some increased speed. The car thought the bikes were a danger and hit at the brakes without the driver's input, causing cyclists to smash into the back of it, ultimately wiping out five riders who, you can bet, have been in touch with their favorite attorneys regarding the matter. Speaking of cars you'd see in Abu Dhabi, Rolls-Royce is coming out with a new one, and it's an SUV called the Cullinan. Uh, we don't have many details about it except the mention this week that it includes a rear viewing suite. Basically, what that means is instead of sitting on your tailgate or rear bumper in your old Range Rover or Volvo, in your Cullinan, you will be treated to two rear-facing leather chairs separated by a small cocktail table, all of which deploy from the trunk at the touch of a button because manual labor is for peasants. 
From this luxuriously comfortable viewing platform, as they call it, you are welcome to take in your children's sporting events or the world's most breathtaking vistas, or as will probably most commonly be used as a place to rest and enjoy some Grey Poupon while your driver removes the horse shit from your boots after your polo match. Um, Last week I mentioned how how a Chrysler over-the-air update uh, to their Uconnect system resulted in boot loop and a bunch of new car owners in the Northeast uh, being very unhappy. Well, Tesla is looking into an OTA update of their own after a Model 3 owner's recent crash experience. Uh, after hitting a parked car while going 60 miles per hour, which uh, you're kind of a shitty driver if you do that, uh, the driver of a Model 3 wasn't able to get his insurance information out of his glove box because it, along with almost every other function of the car, is controlled through the big central touchscreen, which broke in the wreck. He tweeted about his experience, and the ever-socially-engaged CEO, Elon Musk, responded that they would look into pushing out a vehicle update that automatically opens the glove box after after the car comes to a stop following an accident. This is a neat feature, but one I can't help think could have been prevented by just having a simple manual release. So, while it's cool that such updates can fix problems instead of creating them, mark my words, there is going to be an anti-touchscreen revolution in automotive design, and the consumers are going to be the ones to demand it. The Formula One season is right around the corner, and the teams have been unveiling their new cars this week to varying level of interest. Uh, Mercedes probably made the most waves because they are once again expected to be the favorites after dominating so heavily last year. But in typical Australian fashion, Daniel Ricciardo came along and made some waves of his own by crashing on the car's track debut. To his credit, it was pouring down rain, so conditions were poor, and he was in an unfamiliar race car, so those things are bound to happen. Unfortunately, Red Bull Racing tweeted out a photo of the car with the caption, That New Car Feeling, just before the crash, which some might argue jinxed the car. Um, I guess Ricciardo could use a little more feeling from it. Um, Gas taxes have been around just about as long as we've had gasoline, and for good reason. The revenue allows states to invest in infrastructure improvements, and in a country with crumbling infrastructure, states sort of need all they can get to fix our roads and bridges. But with the adoption of hybrids, plug-ins, and electric vehicles, the gas taxes don't get paid by everyone who uses the infrastructure, so several states have begun charging a supplemental registration fee to owners of hybrid or electric vehicles to bridge the funding gap. The latest uh, such case is in Maine, where electric vehicle owners could be charged $250 a year for the privilege of using a car that saves them money on gas and reduces their environmental impact. Hybrid owners would be charged $150 since they still have to fill up every once in a while. Proponents say that this evens the playing field, uh, where, uh, while environmentalists say that this discourages transitioning to more environmentally friendly vehicles, both of which are correct. But until people get on board with a mileage-based tax, Maine isn't really left with any other options for reducing their infrastructure deficit. Just remember, hybrid owners, that repairing a bent rim because of a pothole costs more than your annual registration fee. Now, traffic sucks, and uh, traffic around L.A. really, really sucks. Um, But what sucks even more about being stuck in traffic is being stuck in the sand. 
So while you wouldn't think that that's a situation that happens all that often, consider Southern California, where this week traffic on the 10 freeway was so bad, drivers decided that it was a better idea to drive through a field of sand than to simply wait in the slow crawl on the highway to get to their destination. Turns out driving in sand is tough and cars get stuck super easy. Um, It even looks like the road to the sand trap had been barricaded and that drivers moved the barricades in an attempt to uh, cross it. Fortunately, a traffic chopper covering the backup was able to capture some delightful footage of these ill-advised morons trying to frantically dig themselves out of the holes that they spun for themselves, while the traffic on the highway continues to move on slowly. Uh, At least for me, there are few things more satisfying than staying in the fast lane and passing somebody who peeled out in the right lane around me to try and find a faster path in the right lanes. Uh, Seeing some impatient jackhole trapped in the sand, yeah, that's one of those few more satisfying things. Um, Bad news for people who like keeping their cars. Uh, Vehicle thefts rose by more than 4% in 2017 after having risen 7.6% the prior year, and this follows along with the trend of car parts being more expensive. I know when I had to repair the front of my Mazda from the suicidal Coyote, I couldn't believe a non-Mazda repair shop could could charge more than $2,500 for replacing just some front bumper plastic, a splash guard, and my windshield washer fluid reservoir. But as a handy chart from the National Insurance Crime Bureau indicates, car parts are outrageously expensive. And even if criminals can't sell your whole car because of the VIN number, they can still sell off parts and make as much as 75% of the car's total value. So if there's one thing British people like, it's pubs. And if there are two things that they like, it's pubs and unreliable roadsters. After all, they are great at both things. Um, One Briton named Ben Coombs decided to mark the 70th anniversary of TVR by combining these two things and taking his chimera on a 23,500-mile trek from Svalbard, Norway, in the Arctic Circle, to Tierra del Fuego, Chile, all to visit pubs along the way. The trip was made all the more exciting by the fact that TVR's reliability record is about as solid as a, a nice pub cheddar spread. Uh, luckily for Coombs, the only major incident with the Chimera was a clutch that needed replacing in Nicaragua. I'm not entirely sure how he got a TVR, Nicar- or TVR clutch in a part of the world where such cars were never sold, but I guess that's probably what Amazon is for. Speaking of buying things, if you're looking to buy a Porsche and just so happen to be in the French Alps, a considerable distance from one of the German company's 700 worldwide dealers, I have great news. Uh, Porsche have just opened up a new pop-up showroom 7,500 feet above sea level at the Alpine Resort Meribel. Uh, There, you can look at the solitary Cayenne housed and book a test drive from one of the other actual dealerships after you've finished your day of skiing with other rich people. Uh, The pop-up showroom will be there until April when the snow melts and Porsche has to find another place where all the rich people hang out when not in winter. Might I suggest Montpellier or Marseille or Nice? Since using cars as cars is boring, people have been figuring out different uses for them for decades. They've been used as houses, boats, soccer players, and and now as a computer mouse. 
A couple of resourceful geeks converted a Sebring Vanguard city car, a small, slow, wedge-of-cheese-shaped electric vehicle, into a working computer mouse, since it sort of looks like the old mouse from the Apple Mac 2SE. Uh, so how does using a car as a mouse work? Pretty poorly. Uh, apparently, Simone Geertz and William Osman, the two responsible for the conversion, were able to send an email and draw a very crude picture of the city car they were using as the mouse. Now, there's uh, probably not much danger of this happening, but it's probably best to just use your car as a car because most drivers have enough difficulty just with that part. Here's some new cars. Brand new, brand new, brand new. I don't like it unless it's brand new. You might see me in my well with my Again this week, we saw several cars that are slated to debut in Geneva, ruining the surprise and, and sort of defeating the point of the motor show. Um, sure, outlets are still going to send their journalists to snap photos in person, but the press images distributed by these brands are already the best possible images of the cars you're going to get. Uh, what's sort of ridiculous is that the show isn't even next week, but the week after. And most of the re reveals aren't coming from leaks, but rather seem to be planned PR measures by the brands. Maybe they figure they'll be competing with the other brands for the limelight at the actual show, so getting their cars out early is a good way not to get buried in a pile of more interesting cars. Maybe this is another sign that auto shows are waning in their popularity and influence, and that future car launches will all happen in virtual reality. Who knows? Uh, in any case, here are your new cars. Um, it's not often that this car section, new car section, gets to talk about uh, entirely new brands, but uh, this week is special because of a design study leak uh, following the bean spillage from Spain. Seat, the company with the same name as something you sit on but pronounced differently, um, has announced that they are spinning off Cupra, which was the name of the uh, performance-oriented versions of their vehicles, into a completely standalone brand. Just like Mercedes has done with AMG and Volvo has done with Polestar, Cupra will now get their own models, as well as still creating performance versions of Seat cars. The announcement of the brand came with the company's first vehicle, the Cupra Ateca. Uh, now, from a European performance brand, you would expect that their first vehicle would be some sort of statement maker, right? Something that says, we're here and we mean business, so watch out Honda Type R and Volkswagen GTI. Instead, what we got was, we're here and we are heavily influenced by global market trends and intend to have solid sales instead of operating as a niche manufacturer catering to the desires of performance enthusiasts. Needless to say, their, their first vehicle's a little underwhelming. As you might have guessed, it's a compact crossover that looks aggressive but isn't really any faster than your neighbor's Toyota Highlander. Uh, it has 300 horsepower and all-wheel drive, which are cool, and hits 60 in less than 5.5 seconds, which is quick, but not blisteringly so. What's more interesting is the design study of the Cupra Ibiza, a hot hatchback that Seat has made for years and is apparently great to drive, though we don't get them here in the States. So, since we can't get these here and probably won't ever see one unless we travel abroad, what's the real takeaway from this? Crossovers are ruining even the brands designed to be performance-oriented and enthusiast-oriented from the start. 
Unlike Porsche, Ferrari doesn't really do a whole lot of special editions of their vehicles, so when we get one, they tend to be pretty special. And this was one of those weeks because we were treated to details of the forthcoming 488 Pista, a track-focused version of the 488 GTB with 710 horsepower and 568 foot-pounds of torque, delivering 62 miles per hour in just 2.85 seconds. This is also the first time I've seen a 0 to 60 time include the hundredths of a section of a second in its calculation, which in il- is an illustration of just how ridiculous and excessive these cars are becoming. I don't know about you, but if I drove one of these things and then sat in a McLaren 720S, which does the same run in 2.9 seconds, I would totally be like, oh yeah, you can definitely feel that the Pista is at least four hundredths of a second faster, but five? The cars have virtually the same performance, so you can really tell who uh, Ferrari was benchmarking during testing of the Pista, which should be pretty flattering to McLaren. Uh, Care to guess where this car is going to debut? Yep, Geneva, where there will be no actual new cars. while I was testing, well, when I was test driving cars, the only vehicle that really rivaled the GTI for my affection was the Volvo V60 T6R design, which was an attractive, fast, uh, comfortable wagon that handled well. It lost points for being expensive, heavy, and having a very dated interior. I mean, it even had one of those cell phone dialing button could, uh, displays in them. It was, it was, it was bad. Um, but it was a very strong contender. Uh, now, now though, I'm, I'm really happy that I didn't buy it because there's a new V60 coming soon, and holy shit, is it beautiful. It is a beautiful, beautiful wagon. It cops the, the modern Volvo styling, complete with the Thor's hammer headlights, and, and looks sleek, crisp, it has beautiful lines and curves, the, the dated interior has been completely revised with a big central touchscreen and gigantic speakers that you can even see from the press photos, and and guys, we haven't even gotten to the best part yet. The new V60 will be available with Volvo's T8 powertrain, which pairs a twin-turbo six-cylinder with a plug-in hybrid system that develops 390 horsepower. Sure, this is going to be some top-of-the-line R-design trim shit, and will probably cost around 60 grand. but not only does the wagon renaissance continue, the hot wagon market is heating up. And while I'm in no hurry to replace the GTI, when the warranty runs out in a few years, there might be one or two of these coming off lease, and I might just be one of the first people in line for them. Also revealed ahead of a formal unveiling in Geneva was the second-generation Peugeot 508, which is the company's flagship sedan. Uh, It's super attractive, especially in uh, the red color promoted in the press photos distributed to media sources. And it's being transitioned from a conventional sedan to a fastback, meaning the rear glass lifts with the trunk, which is a popular trend these days. Uh, The powertrains aren't likely to ignite any sort of passion for driving, if you didn't already have it, topping out at 222 horsepower for the gasoline engine. But a plug-in hybrid version will be available after launch, which could tempt some of the more efficiency-minded buyers. Uh, The interior is just as good-looking as the exterior, and it's interesting to see that the French company is investing so much in the development of a really plush sedan, given the falling popularity of that vehicle segment. 
The 508 isn't slated to come to the U.S., but remember that all new Peugeots and their new platform are, are designed to comply with American safety standards. So there's a real possibility that we could see it eventually, and, and thank goodness for that because it's a really pretty car. Uh, in significantly less exciting news, there's a big new SUV from Subaru who have been missing out on sales since the death of the Tribeca, left them with uh, no three-row crossover. Well, that's been fixed now with the new Ascent, which is a handsome-looking SUV that slots in above the Outback as Subaru's largest and most expensive vehicle aside from the track-focused WRX STI Type RA, which is much more interesting. Um... It's about what you would expect from Subaru. All-wheel drive is standard, as is their EyeSight safety package, and it comes with Subaru's turbocharged 2.4-liter boxer engine that puts out 260 horsepower through a super-terrible CVT. I know this because I drove a Forester with that exact same combination and could not find an ounce of joy in driving that car. Um, it's also relatively underpowered compared with other vehicles in its class equipped with V6s, but at least it gets 27 miles per gallon, which is respectable. Um, Subaru's aiming at Toyota with its Highlander and Honda's Pilot, and even hopes to draw some, com uh, some customers in from the German brands, which I'm sure they can do if they find buyers who don't really care how their car looks or feels on the inside and place a greater value or a greater emphasis on, on value for the money instead of driving experience. Honestly, I mean... Given the past few episodes, you'd guess that I, I hate on Subarus. I'm, I'm honestly a Subaru fan. Both my siblings own Subarus, uh, but they have done absolutely nothing to earn my affection recently. Um, and while China's on the cutting edge of vehicle technology, the country also has a reputation for uh, appropriating the design of other vehicles. Um, that rich tradition has continued this week with the Gold Cup S70, which is an odd bird. Um, I say that because it has the beak that adorned most recent Acuras, but is a pickup truck that looks a lot like the current model Honda Ridgeline. So you, would, you wouldn't be totally unreasonable to look at this and think, oh, Honda's making a, an Acura version of their pickup. No, well, they're not, but China is. That's going to do it for this week's show, and since we've made it all the way to the 50th episode, and 50 is totally a milestone, um, I thought a sort of miniature thankathon was in order. Uh, first, I always have to thank Nicholas Falcon for this great intro song, and the track behind me right now is called Basement Floor, and it's a solid jam. Uh, that's way better than just the few measures that you get to hear every week. Um, thank you to my lovely wife, Kira, for putting up with my obsession with writing and recording and publishing this show almost every week because she knows I love it, and I love her for letting me get away with doing this. Uh, thanks to Mike and Jess Lavazetta, who regularly provide me some great feedback on what's working and what isn't, and they share stories and ideas and their own experiences that help inform what I share with you guys every week. Uh, thanks to my colleague Jeff Kelly, who's been a longtime listener and occasionally sits down other business development reps to listen to a segment he thought was particularly funny. A big thank you to Jordan Thompson, who's been helping translate my weekly ramblings into several posts for the blog, which is helping the site gain some traction and establishing some street cred as a real media outlet I aspire to be. Um, thanks to my dogs, Faye and Reese, for so frequently keeping me company while I write these episodes, and most importantly, 
thank you to all you who listen every week or every other week or any week or, and, and are on the ground floor of the hopeful future skyscraper of listeners to this show. I'm glad to know that there are people out there who enjoy what they hear and keep tuning in for more. So to close us out, the last couple of weeks I've featured formula cars to end the show, but those aren't exactly super attainable by most people. So I swung the opposite direction this week and chose a super attainable car, uh, the forthcoming Hyundai Veloster N, which sounds uh, like the South Korean company has learned a little bit from their i20 rally team. Here, friends, is your moment of zen. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.